Let's, uh, let's turn to the book of Amos, Amos chapter 5, tonight as we continue on in our study of Amos. Last week as we were closing out chapter 4, and, and really since the very beginning of this, uh, this study on the prophecy of Amos, it, it's really kind of given us this grand picture of the righteousness of God. That, that's primarily the theme of this. But when we consider the righteousness of God from the standpoint of judgment, uh, as we have been over the past few weeks, uh, and especially last week, dealing with the fact that they had been encouraged strongly to, to repent of their sins. Repentance was put out to them time and again. But they refused. When man does that, the righteousness of God seems to multiply exponentially. And when he says, I'm going to do this and I'm going to judge you because you did not listen to me, there's no threat. It's a promise. And he made that very clear in that last section. So I know it was tough. I know there were some people here that were like, your eyes were about this big because, you know, the, the fact of the matter is God is love, isn't he? God is merciful. God is gracious. God is all of those things. But above all things, he is holy, holy, holy. And he's a just God. And I'm not talking about justice like the world talks about justice today with social justice warriors who've got their heads all scrambled like eggs up there, you know. That's not what it's about. True justice starts and ends with the holiness of God. So those particular attributes of the Lord are very powerful in, in, in the sense of these uh, minor prophets when we began, of course, with Hosea and then Joel and now, and now Amos. <coughs> Excuse me. So as we enter into chapter 5, we're going to be looking at this issue of justice throughout the whole chapter. Now, this is the third time as we enter into verse 1, the third time that God has called out to the people of the northern kingdom of Israel to listen to his word. The third time. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. Hear ye this word, which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. And then he says, the virgin of Israel is fallen. I want to stop there and just mention this phrase because this virgin of Israel, this is what Israel was to be for God, a pure Israel, a pure people who were obedient to the Lord, obedient to his word, obedient to his commands. The word also, the virgin of Israel is giving a picture of the fact that they were a youthful Israel. And as a nation they were, think about that for just a moment. 
There were great empires already by the time that uh, Israel became Israel in the land of Egypt. As they approached the promised land, they met up with other peoples and nations too. They were a young, a young nation. Much like today, when you think about the United States of America in comparison with all of the, 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 the major nations of the world. We've only been around over 300 years, others 3,000 years and so on. Cultures and, and uh, societies of, of, of that age. So there is this youthfulness that God wanted to have for his bride, Israel. But notice that it says, the virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. For thus saith the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave a hundred. And that which went forth by a hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. So now the issue of maintaining justice. <coughs> Excuse me. The issue of maintaining justice within the courts in our country and society is essential for any nation's survival, especially in our times. And I say our country because that's the country that we're most used to when it comes to this issue of, of government and justice. <clears throat> but no nation, no nation will be able to last very long if its judges, if its lawyers and its citizens refuse to be honest and execute true, genuine justice among themselves, no matter if rich or poor. Just one look at the situation in our own country's federal government brings us horrifically close to this thought. And the thought is that society will soon crumble if our elite legislators stand opposed to true justice. Hate honest judges and witnesses, if that's what they do. They, they hate the honest judges and appoint judges with, with political bents. What does that say about lady justice? Somebody's pulled the rag off from her eyes so she can see. Justice is supposed to be blind. Or they abuse and they steal from the poor and the weak, or they oppress the righteous, or they take exorbitant bribes, or they deprive the poor of justice and seek to silence the wise and honest who are striving to build a righteous and just society for all. And by the way, I hate to say it, but all of those things are happening in the USA today, right now. And what we find in chapter 5 of Amos' prophecy is the declaration of God's judgment on the injustice or the unjust attitude of the northern kingdom of Israel. And all of those who are unjust toward their own brothers, toward their own families. Now that's going to be verses 1 through 20. But we're also going to see his justice and his judgment on those who are found to be hypocritical in their ways. That's verses 21 through 27 when we get there. But here at the beginning of chapter 5, we are presented with a voice of lamentation. A voice of lamentation. In effect, it is a funeral song or a funeral dirge 
over the death of a nation. And that nation is the nation of Israel or the northern kingdom of Israel in this case. It is the voice of the Lord through the prophet. It is the voice of the Lord through the prophet raised in lamentation, weeping over the people he loved. Get this, the people that he loved, the people that would have nothing to do with him. Yet he loved them. And he continued to love them. Reading again from verses 1 through 3, Hear ye this word, which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. I'm singing your funeral song. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She's forsaken upon her land. There's none to raise her up. As a nation, that is a hopeless position for them. She shall rise no more. There's none to raise her up. For thus saith the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave a hundred, and that which went forth by a hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. So it is no mystery that the word of God teaches that the Lord's judgment will fall upon all the unjust of the world. That, that's a very general understanding of, of God's judgment. Judgment will fall, God's judgment will fall upon all the unjust of the world. But it's also good to note that the Lord's working with Israel is an example of how he works with us. Take note that all believing Jews and Gentiles that are of the world, that's us. <laughs> God works with us. God's working with Israel is an example of how he will work in, in us. And so whatever happened to Israel will happen to us unless we heed the word of God. In fact, if you go to the New Testament in the book of Romans chapter 15, Paul tells us, for whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning. In other words, everything written in the Hebrew scriptures, everything written in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible, was written for our learning. We as believers in Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile, that we through patience, and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now let me interject very quickly something about that little phrase at the end, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The Old Testament is not just a testament of judgment. It is a, a testament of hope. It is a testament of God's mercies and God's grace and God's love. It is a testament of God's uh, living hope in the Messiah that he is sending to his very people. So getting back to our study, in effect, the Lord was making an appeal. He was making an appeal to the unjust by pleading with them to hear the lament or funeral song he was about to sing. Now the song began by describing Israel as a 
as a young virgin, as I mentioned earlier, who was dying in the prime years of her life. You ever heard the phrase, that person's too young to, die, to, to be dying, you know, or, or, oh, they were so young, you know, that, you know, to die. They were too young to die. In effect, it's what's being said about Israel here, too young to die. As a nation, as I said, Israel was young, nonetheless. She was doomed to die soon, never to rise again. That is, that is, and I want you to understand this, in the very state they, that they were in. They would not rise again as a nation like they had been before. What were they before? They were a nation that was begun in heresy and continued in heresy and apostasy for all of its life. They would never rise again as a nation like that. That's why I, I don't want you to think that, that it's hopeless for Israel. Because those people today who, who say that uh, God has no more care about Israel uh, are completely wrong. God loves his people still. In fact, all you have to do is go back to the book of Romans and read Romans 9 through 11, the, the three chapters, and realize that God isn't done with Israel yet. Read the prophets and, and all of the... Uh, restoration verses that, that uh, are telling us that God is coming back to deal with Israel, even after what happened at the cross. And by the way, it wasn't just the Jewish people that killed Jesus. That's a lie of the enemy. Jew and Gentile had their hands in all of that. That's clear from the Gospels. So they would never rise again then as a nation like they were before. Not only would the army of the northern kingdom of, of Israel be slaughtered and its cities and towns destroyed, but very few of them would survive. That is the, the, the statement that is made in, uh, in verse 3, for thus saith the Lord God, the, the city that went up by a thousand shall leave a hundred, and that which went forth by a hundred shall, shall leave ten to the house of Israel. So what we have here are, are statistics. Verse 3 is a, is a verse of statistics. And the, statist the statistics would be as such. When a city marched out a thousand soldiers to face the enemy, only a hundred would survive. The towns that marched 100 would only have 10 survivors. So what is that telling us about the slaughter? Well, the slaughter would be horrendous. And there's another fact that we need to note. And that is that while the Northern Kingdom would be utterly destroyed, there would be a, a, a few individuals to survive the slaughter. In other words, it is not a complete destruction of the whole nation in the sense of everyone being, uh, being destroyed or killed. The, the Lord would preserve a remnant. God has always preserved a remnant of his people, whether it be in the Northern Kingdom or the Southern Kingdom. And by the way, that, that, that division of Northern and Southern Kingdom, that wasn't God's doing, that was man's doing. It's only one nation of Israel. And ultimately, that's what's going to happen. 
That's what's, that's what's coming back into Israel today in Aliyah. Jews are going back to the land to be one Israel, not two. So the Lord would preserve a remnant that he might fulfill his promise to send his word and the Savior to the world through the Jewish nation. A truth that Jesus and Paul attested to back in, in both in John and, and again in the book of Romans. In John chapter 4, by the way, Jesus, when he was uh, speaking to the woman at the well in Samaria, this is what he said to her in John 4 verse 22. He said, you worship, you, you worship, ye worship, ye know not what. You don't even know what you're worshiping. What we know, or I'm sorry, <laughs> We know what we worship, for, the, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So that attests to the fact that the Messiah came not just for the Jewish people, but also for the Gentiles. And once again, we read in Romans chapter 9, verses 3 through 8, what Paul says about this particular thought. He says, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That would be the Jewish people, because Paul was a Jew. He says, Who are Israelites? to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. Everything that was given in, 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 in the Hebrew scriptures, everything was for them. Whose are the fathers and of whom is concerning the flesh, Christ came who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. And he said, not as though the word of God has taken none effect, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And we have to listen very carefully to this, to this statement of, of Paul. He says, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they called children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. In Isaac. What is that telling us? It's telling us about the promise given to Abraham to bring the line of Messiah through Sarah, not anyone else. Isaac would beget Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. In fact, his name is changed to Israel. And then from that line will come the Messiah. So it is a matter of faith. See, it's always been a matter of faith with Abraham. Notice the rest. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they called, uh, they are, uh, are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, they are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Abraham was counted righteous by faith. So however, for, for the present now, going, coming back to the present, and I say the present of Amos' time, 
both Amos's audience and the reader of this passage of scripture needed to take note that this is still a funeral song being sung over the nation, uh, the, over the northern kingdom of Israel, which, by the way, as I said earlier, was apostate from the very beginning. The northern kingdom of Israel never had a good king because none of their kings was really of the lines that needed to be kings. Well, that's one thing. And then the other thing is that whoever did become king, they went and took the people over there to, to, to start worshiping uh, golden calves in Dan and, and, in, uh, and in Bethel. So it was always apostate. And let's remember that the people of Israel were completely unfair in their dealings with one another and with the other nations. So it wasn't just the idolatry. I mean, that was a big part, of course. But have we not seen throughout even Hosea and Joel and now in, in Amos that the Lord really takes it seriously when you mistreat your own people? When you become unfair to people or you become unjust to, to your own uh, family lines? Consequently, the Lord's hand of judgment was to fall upon them, even as his judgment will fall on all the unjust of the world. So the prophet Amos then pleaded with the unjust. He pleaded with them to seek the Lord and to live. What is that, ple what is that pleading? It's a call to repentance. It's a call to repentance. Look at, it, look at verse 4. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. Seek ye me. Now this is Amos the prophet speaking to the people, telling them, this is what the Lord is saying to you. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, seek ye me and ye shall live. Now the phrase to seek the Lord there in the Hebrew is darash chaya, which means to repent. It means to turn away from sin. And it means to return back to the Lord and his ways. Now remember that the Lord has said, your judgment is set. And still, there's a call for repentance. How many times does God give us that opportunity even when the judgment is set? This is something of a perplexing, uh, giving us a perplexing question about the Lord. I mean, there are things that we don't understand about the Lord, okay? Let's, let's just outright say that right now. None of us know the deepest things that God has for us, but what we trust is that he always has something good for us. That we can trust. Remember that it tells us in the scriptures, I believe it in, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that secret things belong to the Lord. The secret things belong to him. But what he gives us, I mean, it's rich. It's really rich. But I'm bringing this up because you see, he knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. So he knows the nation is not going to repent as a whole nation. But there are still people that would repent. It still happens. Don't forget that there's a remnant. And the door is always open 
God has not shut the door yet. There's a time coming, by the way, though, that's going to be very similar to what happened in the days of Noah. When Noah obediently built the ark, brought the animals that God wanted on the ark, and then put the human beings, his own family, uh, his three sons and their wives and his wife and the eight of them got in. And what did the Lord do? He didn't tell Noah to close the door. God closed it. There comes a time when doors close. Though judgment was coming, a door was always open. There is coming a time. Scriptures tell us very clearly there's coming a time when that door is going to close again. But given every opportunity that the Lord has put out for repentance, no one has an excuse. No one is going to be able to stand before God and say, well, Lord, I, I didn't know. Then he's going to say, yeah, remember this or remember that? Remember what I sent to you, who I sent to you, what I sent to you? And they're going to say, oh, I didn't think you'd remember. <laughs> of course he remembers. And why did he send it? Because he loves you and doesn't want you to be judged. He doesn't want you to be judged eternally. He doesn't want you to be condemned. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Should not perish. So to seek the Lord means to repent. It means to turn away from sin and to return back to the Lord in his ways. It means to trust the Lord and to live righteously. See, that's the other thing. You trust the Lord and you live righteously just as he commands. Let's consider something. Consider Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Notice the words. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. But then notice this. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon so there's a connection now with repentance and seeking the Lord and having a complete life change. No longer doing what you are doing to go away from God. Now you're doing those things that please God by going toward him. Consider one of the great Psalms of, of David. Let's sit down here for a second. Uh, psalm 51 we're all familiar with it it's it's the great uh, psalm of of david's repentance from his great sin with bathsheba and he says in verses 14 through 19 now he says a lot in the first 13 verses too but i just want to pick up here because i want you to see what he says he says deliver me he's praying to the lord and he says deliver me from blood guiltiness O god Thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. Remember what we talked about earlier about God's righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. 
Thou delightest not in burnt offering. But notice what the real sacrifice is. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, thou will not despise. See, the reason why he says that about the sacrifice, you know, he doesn't desire the sacrifice of the burnt offering. Why? Because people could do that and their hearts never change. They think that by doing it, they're getting points. They're getting points to go to heaven. No one gets to heaven by points. We get to heaven because we surrender. We surrender to God. We surrender to the work of Christ. Why God, you know, why God sent his only begotten son. Sacrifices are a broken spirit. When our spirit is broken because we've offended a holy God. A contrite heart, a heart that is sorrowful for its sin. I don't know if people realize the extent of, 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 a, of a contrite heart before a, before a merciful God. He knows the heart. So we can't play games with God if, if he knows the heart. But then he, David goes on and says, do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offering and whole burnt offering. See, the Lord then will be pleased with that because he realizes that the heart is now broken and, and, and given to the Lord to mend and to heal and to make new. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. So if any of the Israelites were willing to, uh, to truly seek the Lord, God would save them from the coming judgment. That's the bottom line. And even though the vast majority of the nation had sinned so long, they would, they would never repent, there were apparently a number of Israelites whose hearts were tender enough to still be touched by the Lord. Those few would repent. And it was for this reason, the hope of being delivered from the coming judgment that the prophet Amos declared the urgency of repentance. And by the way, earlier on, I said, you know, that uh, they would not be completely wiped out. And of course we know that, why? Because there will always be 12 tribes of Israel. There will be people from each tribe. In, uh, we see it in the book of Revelation. That is an important marker for us. And this is another reason why replacement theology is, is really heretical. To say that, that Israel has been replaced by the church. That's a ridiculous thing because you can't really prove it from the scriptures. You have to change the whole makeup of what Israel is to say, well, no, God doesn't, you know, he's, he's rejected them. No, he hasn't. Well, here's a verse that says he did. Yeah, yeah, he rejected them at that moment, but he didn't give up on them. You know why? Because if he gave up on them, he wouldn't be God. 
God made a promise that was unilateral, and it was a promise made to Abraham that the people that would come from him, in particular, the Jewish people, in other words, the people that came from Isaac and Jacob, he made a covenant with them forever. An unconditional covenant. Can't break that. If God breaks it, he's not God. So, the importance then of repentance. So, in the next verse, Amos cried out to the unjust not to seek deliverance or help in false worship. He says, okay, you need to come back to the Lord. Now, here's what you don't do. But seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to naught. So all the false worship, all the false worship centers would, would be destroyed. And the false worshipers exiled from the promised land belonging to the God of Israel. The cities of Bethel, the city of, of Gilgal and Beersheba were, were the major centers of false worship. Apparently, people from all over the northern kingdom made periodic pilgrimages to these major worship sites. However, the prophet warned the people, the Lord's judgment was to destroy these worship centers. The, the centers were going to be completely destroyed. They would be demolished and, and be reduced to absolutely nothing. Sadly, Sadly, the people were going to the shrines in droves and coming home further from God than when they left. Every time they went to these worship centers, they got further and further away from God, the true and living God, the God of Israel, their God. And what a contrast that these cities had undergone from time past. Think about which ones are, are mentioned, Beershah, Bethel, and Gilgal. I mean, these were places once linked to Jacob, Joshua, and Abraham. Abraham had pitched his tent and, and raised his altar at Bethel when he first entered the promised land. It was there that Jacob had seen his vision of the ladder and been converted. In Bethel. It was at Gilgal that Joshua had reinstituted the covenant seal of circumcision. It was also there that, that Joshua's troops had returned again and again for spiritual renewal during the conquest of Canaan. They went to Gilgal. Abraham had dug his well where? At Beersheba. Beersheba. Israel should have been able to return to these places in gratitude to God, but they had become polluted centers of idolatry and utter and fetid heathenism disguised by the use of biblical terms and forms. That's what goes on today. Listen, you can, you can talk the, lingu the lingo of Christianity. Doesn't make you a Christian. It isn't about saying praise the Lord every other sentence. It's about knowing the Lord every breath that you take. It's about knowing who your Redeemer is. I know my Redeemer lives, Job said. I know he lives. 
We need to know that he lives every moment and with every breath that we take. Getting back to Beersheba, Beersheba is the well of the oath. It was a place where the Lord ratified Abraham's covenant with Abimelech. And where Abraham called on the name of the Lord and he called him the everlasting God. And now it was a stronghold of idolatry. I say now, the time of, of Amos. Gilgal, the word itself means the place of rolling, the place of rolling. Here's a play on similar sounds in the Hebrew. What we see here in the verse that mentions them, verse 5. In the Hebrew, it's Gilgal Galoch Yigleh. Gilgal Galol Yigleh. It's a play on sounds. And what it means is Gilgal shall rolling be rolled away. Gilgal shall rolling be rolled away. The text says Gilgal shall surely go into captivity. Gilgal shall surely go into captivity. And then what about Bethel? Well, we know that Bethel means the house of God. The house of God. But the name was changed. It was now called Bethaven. Bethaven means the house of vanity or the house of naught, which means the house of nothing. The house of nothing because of its vain, worthless idols. And as our text says, Bethel shall come to naught. Bethel shall be Bethaven, nothing. It's obvious from these names and their usage here that another reason that the Lord should be sought is because there is no other way to experience spiritual blessing. There's no other way to experience spiritual blessing. Seeking God's blessings under false pretenses and in false worship practices will yield only vain, worthless, and empty results. And by the way, it wouldn't be a stretch to say that, that those living in the northern kingdom of Israel were in effect living under, and I quote, an antichrist spirit. They wouldn't have known that word back in, in Amos's time. But I don't believe it's a stretch to say that those living in the northern kingdom of Israel were, were in effect living under that very same antichrist spirit. Because when you think about it, where does the spirit come from? It comes from Satan, it comes from the enemy. The Antichrist spirit is, is, is the spirit of the enemy. You know, this past weekend, I quoted from John's letter, uh, John's first letter to the church concerning the testing of spirits. Let me reread those verses, verses uh, one through three of John, uh, 1 John 4. John said, beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, which means test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now, already, is, is it in the world. Now, earlier in his letter, that would be back in chapter 2, John wrote this in 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19. He said, little children, it is the last time, which means we're living in the last days. Can you imagine John wrote that 2,000 years ago? And that's the last days. We've been in the last days for a long time. He said, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. We know it because it was predicted this would happen. But notice this. I want you to notice it real carefully. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. And I, and I thought about that as prayerfully as I could. I thought about that statement. They went out from us, but they were not of us. So that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. And the first thought that came to mind was the split that came to Israel. The northern kingdom became established under uh, the, the ten tribes that formed the northern kingdom became established under Jeroboam. And, and, and the fact of the matter is they completely got away from their worship of the true and living God in the city that God wanted them to worship in, which was Jerusalem, in the city of Zion, at the temple alone, to worship the true and living God. Interesting thought. What was motivation for them if it wasn't a spirit of Antichrist. Same spirit. And here, here we see somewhat the progression from, the, from deception to delusion because they were deceived. They were deceived and, and, and the thing about it is deception leads to delusion. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 for a moment. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 3. This is a very classic prophetic passage by Paul. The problem at the time in, in Thessalonica was that people were telling them that the day of the Lord was already happening. In other words, the day of the Lord being the, you know, the uh, tribulation period. 
That was already happening. And Paul had been having to tell them that wasn't, that wasn't what was really happening. So here we see in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. An apostasia, a falling away. And that man of sin be revealed. The man of sin being the Antichrist. The son of perdition. The son of lostness. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? Now this was a young church, and you would think, well, with a young church, you know, we got to teach them all the, you know, all the basics, you know. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know, that kind of thing. But did you know that in the months that, that Paul was with him, he taught them biblical prophecy. He taught them that the Lord is coming. And that the Lord is coming for his church. And that when he does that, that's when the day of the Lord begins. So he says, remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now you, you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his in his time. The church. That is blessed with the power of the Holy Spirit within. For the mystery of, the, for the mystery of iniquity does already work. I mean, this, you know, the, the wheels of iniquity are already turning. They've been turning since the garden. He says, only he who now letteth will let, which means he who now restrains will restrain until he be taken out of the way. And again, that is usually understood as being the church on the earth with the Holy Spirit because the church has the spirit within. And then it says, shall that wicked be revealed? Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. Then of course you have to go back to chapter four of, of, of uh, of 1 Thessalonians where he talks about the rapture of the church and he talks about the church being taken out of the way and that's a comforting thing to know that that's what God's going to do to get us out of the way so he can continue to deal with Israel and then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming even him notice this whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and notice again with all deceivableness of unrighteousness the deception of unrighteousness in them that perish <clears throat> because they received not. Take hold of this thought. They received not the love of the truth. Do you know what that means? It wasn't as if they weren't home and the mailman came and they didn't get the chance to, to receive it. No. They received not the love of the truth because they rejected the love of the truth. They didn't receive it. They didn't want it. They cast it away. Sound familiar? It's like the northern kingdom of Israel. That they should believe a lie. Oh, and by the way, it says that they might be saved. And for this cause, I almost skipped the most important part. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion. 
Remember that there's a progression from deception to delusion, that they should believe a lie. By the way, you know what, the, what that is? Literally in the Greek, it is the lie, that they should believe the lie. What lie is that? Genesis chapter 3. That's the lie. Because that has been the root of every lie since then. That they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So, I heard a simple but profound definition of the word delusion, which was a fixed false belief. A delusion is a fixed false belief. And I, I heard this from uh, a um, psychiatrist or psychologist, I'm, I'm not sure which one she was, but she was talking about the transgender problem that we have in the country today. And uh, she, what, what she was saying was that, uh, you know, this, this is a delusional, based primarily on the fact that biologically and physiologically, women have XX chromosomes, men have XY. That's, that's all there is. There's nothing else. You're one or the other. You become, you make a choice. Okay, well, not, that's not what this is all about. But that's what I was hearing. And then I heard this, this definition for delusion, a fixed false belief. But I dug deeper into the word and it, it's a fixed false belief that is resistant to reason or confrontation with actual fact. And then an, alter, an alternate definition for delusion is even more stinging, I think. It is a persistent false belief that is a symptom or form of madness. Madness. <laughs> madness. People's minds, particularly those today in visible superficial Christianity, I call it the visible church. The invisible church is made up of all those who are believers in Jesus Christ, true believers, and God knows you. That's the invisible church. Though we're not invisible when we go out and preach the gospel. The visible church is just whatever's out there that people think is Christianity. So people's minds, particularly those in visible superficial Christianity, today are being deluded, deluded, daily by false teachers and false doctrines that have no foundation in the scriptures, but are being embraced as the gospel. And it's painful to know that people who should know better, because we've been given the word of God, but do you know when, they, when you put it aside and close it, and decide that there are other things more important than the word of God, then you've said to the Lord, we really don't care about your word, we really just care about things that sound right or sound good, or pleasing. So it's painful to know that people who should know better are being deceived, misled, duped, and conned into believing lies, especially as we near the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's delusion. And we're living in the day of delusion. 
And I don't mean just in the world, I'm talking about in the church. Now, thankfully, Paul went on to say this, verse 13. He said, but we're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, notice what he says. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. We talked about that on Sunday. Stand fast, hold your ground and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or by, or our epistle, which actually now is the word and, uh, you know, Old and New Testament. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our father, which has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work, word and work. I mention all of that because, you know, Paul has said that the Old Testament is given to us to teach us what we read earlier from Romans 15. It's there for us as an example. It's there to teach us. But the Northern Kingdom of Israel and the Southern Kingdom of Judah, both of them were given the word of God. And both eventually rejected it. Not all the people, but as a nation or as nations, they rejected the truth. So when that happens, God has to deal with them. He deals with his own people because he loves them. But that doesn't make the, it doesn't make the, um, the chastisement easy. And it shouldn't be. I mean, I'm not asking for it. But we know that when it comes, it's to draw us back to the Lord. It's to bring us back to him. It's to strengthen us. It's to purify us. It's to cleanse us. Lastly, let's look at just verse 6 now of Amos 5. What do we see? Now the prophet says, seek the Lord. The prophet speaks to the people. Remember verse four, it was God. He said, the Lord has said, seek ye me and you shall, you shall live. Now the prophet is crying out to his own people. Seek the Lord and ye shall live. Lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it. And there be none to quench it in Bethel. So as we see now twice, the Lord has used the phrase, seek the Lord and you shall live. The people were given a choice, either seek the Lord and live 
or else faces coming judgment. Now the Lord would sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. The house of Joseph, by the way, is another name for the tribe of Ephraim, or Ephraim that descended from Joseph and often stood for the entire northern kingdom of Israel. Now the whole house of Joseph would be set on fire and completely burned to the ground. And furthermore, there would be no false god in Bethel who would come to the rescue and quench the fire of God's holy judgment. They, that's why they were told, don't go and seek for that because it's not going to happen. There's no false god going to come to your rescue. And I, I wonder if, if, in, if in this life today, in, in this society of ours, in this culture of ours of focusing our attention on superheroes and antiheroes and, and, and whatnot. They don't come to your rescue either. Fantasies today do not rescue you. Calgon can take you away, ladies. Just doesn't happen. We should never forget that our God in all of his holiness and all of his righteousness and all of his justice and all of his power is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4 verses 23 through 29 says, take heed unto yourselves. Now listen carefully and put together everything that we've heard so far. Take heed unto yourselves. Now remember, this is in the time of Moses. So hundreds and hundreds of years before Amos. Take heed unto yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make you a graven image or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God has forbidden thee. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, notice, even a jealous God. When thou shalt beget children and children's children, and you shall have remained long in the land and shall corrupt yourselves and make a graven image or, or the likeness of anything and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto you go over Jordan to possess it. You shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and you shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall, send, shall lead you. And there you shall serve gods. Look at this. The work of men's hands wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him, if thou shalt seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Sound familiar? Call to repentance, even before the people go astray. That was how great the warning was. 
That was God telling them, I know what's going to happen to you. But I'm giving you the warning right now. If you seek me, you will find me. But you must seek me with all your heart and with all your soul. Does that apply to us as believers in Jesus Christ? Well, how about we read Hebrews 12 and we'll close with this. Verses 28 and 29. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, charis, undeserved favor, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Is that any different than what the, the children of Israel were told to do in worshiping the Lord? They were to worship him in reverence. They were to worship him in godly fear. There's no difference, right? I mean, there's a major difference now time-wise and, and also because Jesus had come already. But we're talking about the same God. He never changes. The word of God, same word, never changes. So what does he say? Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And there's that phrase again. For our God is a consuming fire. The idea is that we are never to forget who our God is. And we're never to forget that he doesn't change. He never changes. And his word never changes. We learn from the Old Testament. We learn from the mistakes of the children of Israel. But we also learn how merciful God has been. How great he is to give them redemption. To send them, folks, to send them his only begotten son, Yeshua, HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the creator of the heavens and the earth. That's why he said, praise God that he never changes. He's a consuming fire. If anything, let him just consume all of the things that have bound us in this life, that bind us to this earth. Let him break those chains. We might set, be set free to worship him and praise him with all of our hearts and lives.